the first scripture this morning is Proverbs chapter 8, verses 15 to 17. By me, kings reign, and rulers issue decrees that are just. By me, princes govern, and nobles, all who rule on earth. I love those who love me, and those who seek me find me. And the next scripture is in James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitterness, excuse me, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition, in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Well, today is our fifth uh, sermon in this series, uh, Faith and Flourishing in Politics, and that means after this, we'll be halfway done. Uh, so it flies by, and I'm grateful to be doing this with all of you. So let me pray, and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for your goodness, for your grace. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for these outdoors that we can enjoy that help us gather. Lord, we come before you, um, heavy hearts, some of us, joyful spirits for others, and somewhere in between for probably most of us, Lord. And I, I ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to focus on Jesus, on his words, that you would lift our hearts and our minds heavenward, and we could just hear from you through your word, through, through your spirit. Lord, we need you uh, in this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, I say this carefully, but I, I'm like a low-level sci-fi nerd. And I, I say low-level because there's always someone that's more of a sci-fi nerd than you. Amanda, for ex example, I think you're probably more of a sci-fi nerd than me. So I'm reading this epic fantasy series that she told me about. Therefore, she's like my spiritual sci-fi mother. Uh, so it's all spirit-inspired. Spirit none of that was in here. Uh, but one of my favorite uh, movies, sci-fi movies, and if you don't like sci-fi, just forgive me. Uh, I'm not going to say SW. I'm going to say uh, The Matrix. <laughs> the Matrix. Um, if you don't like it, it's okay. 
Uh, but I think there's this interesting part in the Matrix, right? The Matrix is about like this computer-generated world. All the people are sort of put inside this program where the machines are feeding off them. And I'm sure there's all sorts of allegories for our, our real world. But I want to focus on one of them in particular. If you have your slides, there's like this picture of uh, Neo. His name means one, the one. Uh, it's Keanu Reeves. And he's sitting on this bench in a subway station. It's called Mobile Ave. This is in the Matrix trilogy, not in the first one, okay. Uh, and uh, he, he's in this place uh, called Mobile Ave, the subway station that's sort of this halfway point between the real, like, post-apocalyptic, terrible world that no one wants to be in, this sort of computer-generated paradise that's not really a paradise, it's sort of our world. And he's, and he's in this Mobile Ave, and it's this sort of, like, elsewhere place, right? Not here, not there elsewhere that's also another sci-fi reference for those that know that uh, uh and and in this place uh he's stuck uh, see mobile ab is another way of saying limbo limbo right it's a it's a, an anagram for limbo mobile limbo uh because he tries like running down the the track to get out and it just like puts him right back <laughs> where he was and if he were to run down the the track either direction 50 100 thousand times he would just end up right where uh, back in that limbo station. He can't get there. It's out of his control. As I'm thinking about our series, I think there are some, there's some gaps. There's some, there's some places that we want to get to, uh, you know, a state of flourishing, shalom, God's goodness, political beauty, and yet we're sort of stuck in limbo. And no matter how many times you run down the track, you sort of end up back where you started. And I think that's just a very apt description of like our political engagement of the world, right? Like you, you put your hope in a politician one election, and four years later you feel like you're right back where you started. Or you vote local and your person gets in, and then two years later someone else is in. Or that person does something that you don't, agree with right and so we've been learning a kind of ways to walk the track to lord willing maybe possibly get a little further towards flourishing get a little flourishing to the the real world that god sort of casts for us in genesis 1 we've been doing that through the acronym flourish this is meant to be memorable so that like you know once this series is done if you can remember the word flourish you can be like oh yeah f was faith not fear how can I engage in politics out of faith and faithful presence and not being afraid? L, love God and neighbor. How can I think about loving God and my neighbor as I go about this task? Am, am I getting consumed with politics? Maybe it's becoming an idol in my life and I need to kind of reset. Other people's good. We talked about that today in Christian Ed, right? Shalom, the common good. How can we seek our community, society's well-being? And just how complicated that is. <laughs> As you can see, like these things are good. These are good principles, but they're not like, well, if I just like vote this, we're there. It's not just check, check, check. It's tension. It's limbo. <laughs> and I want to talk about one particular like gap uh, between like where we see the Bible saying we should be and then actually putting that into reality. Uh, see, I believe there is a gap between biblical flourishing, the vision that God gives us, and like we're going to talk about the most 
like hands-on thing, policies and politicians. All right? So there's a gap between the biblical version vision God gives us and politics or politicians and policies. I believe the Bible gives us a vision of what flourishing looks like. Right? So so let's just imagine here, right? Here's the vision of shalom, here's the like wholeness, everything's as it should be, there's justice, there's harmony. And then over here, maybe like way over here, <laughs> there's policies and politicians. It's like, how do you get from here to here? <laughs> how do you do that? Right? Because sometimes it just seems like we kind of end back in this this region and we're not really sure. And sometimes we get like further away from like the flourishing that we we learn about when we actually try to put those things into practice. And as we come to the scripture, uh, we discover that this gap is scriptural. <laughs> that the Bible doesn't bridge the gap between biblical justice and flourishing and policies. Well, it sort of does, but it doesn't give us a clear picture. Because the Bible is not a public policy manual. Just say that. The Bible is not a policy manual. The Bible's not a science textbook. The Bible is not a policy manual. So let's just think about the Bible for a minute. So this is like how you read the scripture is going to impact how you hear this. Right? The Bible is the story of God rescuing his people. First he does it through the nation of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? His special covenant people. And then God continues the story through the church, through the followers of Christ. He calls us to live by this new ethic, right? The Sermon on the Mount that we read about, Matthew 5 through 7. And as we read the scripture, as we read the Bible, uh, Old Testament and New, we find something happening. It's not just our minds that are changed, it's actually our hearts that are impacted. And this is what God says about his word. He says this in Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So if we approach the Bible like a policy manual, we're like way underestimating the power of God's word. It's like a sharp knife that cuts at our hearts and exposes our insecurities and our idols, the things we truly love. God uses his word to root out those idols because he knows that our deepest flourishing, our, our, our best good is to know and worship him and him alone. Love God. And so as we read Scripture, we've got to be careful. Several years ago, I sat down and I thought, you know what, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a book uh, explaining exactly how the Bible applies to political issues today, like immigration and abortion and, and, and gun care, gun con control, and I guess it would be gun care, uh, homosexuality, all those things. I'm going to write a book, I'm going to have a chapter on each, we're going to call it The Political Platform of Jesus Christ, and we're just going to once and for all 
clarify where Jesus stands politically. It was going to line up with me. <laughs> and it very quickly, well, I don't even know if it was quickly. It took some time. Began to realize, still realizing, that the Bible is not a textbook for American politics or British politics or Indian politics or Chinese politics. It's not. It comes and it, and it exposes our hearts. And several authors have written books like that where they kind of look at political issues, and I've read some of those books. Some are better than others. <laughs> some seem more true to the Scripture than others. But they're all limited in their ability because all of those books, like those topical kind of let's look at the Bible, because that's not how the Bible presents itself. Right? So when we come to God's Word with a paradigm, trying to sort of like fit it into a grid, it's often not going to fit the way we want it to fit. The Bible is not a policy manual. But the Bible does sort of help us build a bridge. It doesn't tell us exactly what the policies are, but the, the, Bible, the Bible doesn't endorse politicians or policies, but it does endorse humility, wisdom, not politicians. Every election, right, there's always candidates claim to be the Christian candidate. Maybe they say a prayer or show up at a prayer breakfast or quote a Bible verse. But the Bible, no matter how many of those things those politicians do, does not endorse any political candidate apart from Jesus, King Jesus. Instead, the Bible endorses a heart attitude, a heart attitude of wisdom. And that's where we read James 3, verses 13 through 18. It says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Right? And then down to 15, or down to uh, 17, But the wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And so that's what the Bible endorses. Heart attitude, humility, meekness, right? Impartiality, merciful spirit, being open to reason, gentle, pure, peaceable. These are all good fruits. Andy and Christian Ed today brought up the fruit of the Spirit, right? And how we're to be living and, and seeking the fruit of the Spirit as we engage in our world today. And man, if Christians were marked by the fruit of the Spirit as we engaged in politics, that would make a huge difference, right? And we're all sort of politicians because we all do politics, as we care for our city, as we vote, as we engage. And so you can be a politician who has a heart attitude endorsed by God, as you seek humility and wisdom. Not platform or being right. James does condemn those other things, sort of this earthly wisdom, this earthly reason, right? Bitter jealousy. Selfish ambition. Never heard of that in politics. Boastfulness. Seen that on both sides of the aisle false to the truth. This is not heavenly wisdom. This is demonic. Remember how we talked about the fall running through each of us? 
right? This hard attitude can run through either side. Does not matter your political platform. We can have pride of spirit, arrogance, bitterness, all those characteristics. And so we need God to come in and change our hearts to give us a heart attitude of humility and of wisdom. The Bible endorses wisdom and humility that lead to shalom. In college, I did volunteer, so I I wanted to do extra credit for my uh, political science class. Uh, And the teacher said, you could just volunteer for a candidate, right? So I volunteered. And I I called people. And I went precinct walking and knocked on their doors and left uh, little door handle hook things. I got barked at by dogs. (laughs) It was kind of scary. I held up a sign at a street corner. Right? Even though I had a candidate that I was, that I was engaging, uh, kind of the, the community for on behalf of that I was advocating for, the Bible didn't endorse that candidate. I, as a Christian, long before I ever became a pastor, could have the freedom to do that. Right? And so you have the freedom to choose if you want to endorse a candidate or not. But we always have to recognize that like that should stop short of saying what Jesus wants, what the Holy Spirit wants, right? I can endorse, Scripture does not. And so we go back to this gap, right? This limbo ad, right? We have this vision of flourishing as it should be, and yet there's like actual human policy. How do we get from here to there? Because the Bible doesn't give us this. Just one word, wisdom, wisdom. Wisdom helps us bridge the gap between flourishing and policy. There's no like appendix in the back of the Bible that says like what you should vote for or the the policies you should create. Wisdom, wisdom is not an easy thing. It requires time, effort, thought, knowledge, study. You have to study uh, God's word to Understand who God is and then study your context, right? your world, the systems, the people. And Proverbs defines wisdom in verse 7 of chapter 1. It says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Right, So wisdom starts with a heart attitude of reverence and fear for who God is. And one of the ways we express that reverence and fear for who God is by coming to Scripture with a humble heart, right, and 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 not trying to strain policies or politicians out of His Word, right? That's wisdom to come before God and to to say, "Wow, God, this this Word is bigger and more powerful than I could ever imagine, and it wants to root out the sins in my heart and help me to be a faithful follower of Christ in this world." I like how one author defines wisdom, right? Because like wisdom sounds great. And you're like, how do you define wisdom? I've always found wisdom sort of challenging to to define. Uh, But here's this definition, which I think is very biblical. What is wisdom? It's a capacity of mind that combines the fear of the Lord with the skill of living in God's created but fallen world. 
in a way that yields justice, peace, and flourishing. I love that. God's created world, Genesis 1, but God's fallen world. Right? How do we live in that tension? It takes wisdom. <laughs> it takes wisdom to figure out how to cultivate that Genesis 1 mandate, that Jeremiah 29 mandate to seek the flourishing of the city, that, that Acts 2 model of, of seeking the common good of, of God's people and those around us. It takes so much wisdom. It helps bridge the gap, right? Mind the gap <laughs> with wisdom. Now, the Bible does like sort of set some parameters around that vision of flourishing. The Bible, like some, some things are a little bit more clear, right? Like, thou shalt not murder. <laughs> thou shalt not steal. That sort of is like a public policy. <laughs> but then, even then, right? more like our our laws are far more complex than than just those words right we don't necessarily want to take israel's laws written for god's people back then and plunk it down on our world (laughs) i don't think that would be right either but the bible does even in proverbs map out some sort of interesting guidelines The Proverbs encourages a just and flourishing society to care for the most vulnerable, the poor, widows, and orphans. Here we see this in Proverbs 29, verse 7. A righteous man knows the rights of the poor. A wicked man does not understand such knowledge. Proverbs 15. The Lord tears down the house of the proud but maintains the widow's boundaries. Proverbs 23. Do not move an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is strong. He will plead their cause against you. Right? Here's the vision. Flourishing community takes care of the poor, the orphans, the widows. But the Bible doesn't say how to do it. Right? Do we create a expansive and comprehensive social safety net in which to take care of those people? Or do we try to create policies that create more jobs and allow people the chance to work and get ahead? The Bible does not say which policy we have to take. It requires wisdom. The Bible says that work is good. <laughs> the Bible says taking care of the poor is good. How we figure that out comes down to wisdom. And wisdom is challenging. It's complex. It's not easy. Sometimes it's even unexpected. There's an interesting story of Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Maybe some of you know him. He's been very, well, you don't know him directly, but he's been very popular sort of in contemporary Christian culture for maybe a decade now. And uh, he was a pastor in Germany during World War II who resisted Hitler. Uh, And the day that France fell, uh, he was in Germany. In a public cafe with his friend, so the he was in Germany with a friend. the 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 announcement came out, right? It, it resounded through the city that that France had fallen to Germany. And then his friend describes what happens next. The people around the tables could hardly contain themselves. They jumped up 
and some even climbed on the chairs. With outstretched arms, they sang Deutschland, Deutschland über alles, which means Germany, Germany above all. And they also sang the Nazi anthem. We stood up, too. Bonhoeffer raised his arm in the regulation Hitler salute. While well, I stood there dazed. Raise your arm, are you crazy, he whispered to me. And later, we shall have to run risks for very different things now, but not for that salute. So in that moment, a German pastor who stood against the teachings of Hitler had to decide, right, was he going to resist, stay seated, and possibly risk going to jail, being in prison? Or was he going to stand up, do the Nazi salute, and resist? Right? Was he wrong or was he wise? You decide. Wisdom helps us bridge the gap between flourishing and policy. It doesn't solve everything. It doesn't offer easy or quick answers. What wisdom does is wisdom takes time to listen and understand, then act. Wisdom takes time to listen and understand, then act. See, foolishness is the opposite of wisdom. Foolishness makes snap decisions, doesn't care what others think, doesn't really care about understanding, just wants to be right, wants to have it its own way. Proverbs 1 verse 5 says this, it says, Let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtains guidance right? That's beyond just read one social media posting, come to a conclusion about international policy, right? It's beyond just listening to a couple podcasts. It's a heart attitude. It's a posture of taking time to really understand our world, recognizing that we're never going to quite get it all the way. We don't have all of God's wisdom, but we can align towards it. Wisdom is sort of exhausting, though, right? Because it's much easier to sort of divide people into categories, their party wrong, my, my party right, that I don't really have to deal with their arguments or their logic or their reasons or their policies. I can just sort of say, well, if you're on my side, you're on my side, and if you're on their side, you're wrong. Uh, I heard it said recently, curiosity is the new humility, <laughs> Curiosity is the new humility, right? Being curious. What does the other side think? What, why do they think those things? Maybe I can find someone who, is a, if I'm a, a diehard conservative, maybe I can find a diehard liberal and ask them about their positions. Or if I'm a diehard liberal, I can find a diehard conservative and ask them, like, why do you believe what you believe? Let's pretend for a moment that it's the middle of the night. Your doorbell starts to ring. You open the door and you find two people there, right? One's a Republican, one's a conservative. It's on their T-shirt. And the one you disagree with the most politically, I don't know who that is, the one you just disagree with the most politically, they grab your shoulder and they exclaim, your house is on fire. And the other one that you agree with politically, who you would affirm, grabs your other shoulder and says, no, it's not. No, it's not. 
Would you close the door and go back to bed? Because the one you already have an inclination to agree with, you know, said you're fine? Or would you run around the house and look, like, is my house on fire? I should really check this out. I should listen. Do I hear flames? Right, but when it comes to politics, I think sometimes we just slam the door. We don't really take time to listen, to understand, to cultivate curiosity and a heart attitude of wisdom. Wisdom takes time to listen, to understand, and then act. There is action in wisdom. Wisdom is not this passive thing, but it takes time. I mean, we need, as individuals, as participants, to develop a hard attitude of wisdom. We also need leaders who are wise. And Scripture talks about this. We read this already in Proverbs 8, 15 through 17, that wise leaders help a nation flourish. By me, kings reign. So this is wisdom personified saying this. By me, kings reign, and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule, and nobles all who govern justly. I love those who love me. And those who seek me diligently find me. So you want rulers who demonstrate wisdom. Think about Solomon, David's son. He was called one of the wisest rulers. And early in his reign, as he was sort of establishing himself, two prostitutes came to him. They'd each had a child. And during the night, one of the mothers had had accidentally uh, taken the life of her own child. So she went and she swapped babies with the other prostitute. And so they came to Solomon saying, hey, like the one lady whose baby had been stolen, she's like, this, this woman took my baby. The other woman said, well, this baby's mine. Who, who could know? <laughs> hey, there was no like DNA testing at that point. So Solomon said, well, bring me a sword. I'll cut the baby in half, and I'll give half to one and half to the other. And the the mom who had taken the baby was like, oh, that's great. <laughs> that's a great idea. The other mom was like, no, she can have the baby. Solomon says, give the baby to her. It's her child. Right? Like, what public policy could you create beforehand <laughs> to figure that out? just took wisdom. It took wisdom. First Kings says this, and all Israel heard of the judgment of the king, that the judgment the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. We were seeking to cultivate in ourselves and to cultivate within the church, cultivate in our society wise, just leaders. Does this mean that if you're not a Christian and that you don't have that basic fear of the Lord that you can't be a wise leader? I think that people that are not Christians can show and demonstrate basic wisdom, right? That they're operating with skill according to how God has made the world. Maybe they don't have that baseline fear of the Lord. On the other hand, you can have candidates who very boldly state that they are the Christian candidate and demonstrate very little wisdom. Don't have that humility. So looking at the actions, looking at the wise actions, takes time. And just, I think, maybe giving our leaders a measure of grace, whatever side they're on, 
I, I watched a, a panel on uh, on politics, these three different uh, perspectives. One of them was Chuck Colson, right? He worked for Nixon, did some bad things, went to prison, started a prison ministry. Uh, but he said, you know, because he continued to rub shoulders with those in high positions of power, and I am going to send this panel out today in my follow-up email. But he, he said, like, he was amazed at the highest levels of power that there was nothing that was black and white. It was always gray. Because if you created one policy for one group of people, you had like no idea like who it could hurt on the other end of things. Like a, a group of people or an organization you had never even thought of would come out of the work and be like, this affects us negatively. All shades of gray, all trying to use their wisdom to discern what was best. Well, at least some of them trying to use wisdom. And he was surprised by how many people came out of the woodwork who were trying to follow Christ in that position. There's a gap between biblical flourishing and actual policies and politicians. Wisdom helps us bridge the gap between flourishing and policy. But all, at the end of the day, ultimately comes to Jesus, right? Doesn't it? Because Jesus embodies wisdom. And he grants wisdom to those who seek it. Jesus is wisdom in the flesh. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says this, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So you know, much, no matter how much wisdom we acquire, how, how skillful we will become, we will always fall short. We will always make mistakes. We will always, with the best of intentions, vote for one candidate and then they do their thing. Or vote for a public policy and then it goes a direction we couldn't have intended. And sometimes the downside of understanding is that knowledge can puff up, right? We can use that knowledge against others. We don't always know how to best love our neighbors without hurting our neighbors. But here's the thing. Jesus embodied God's perfect wisdom so that we don't have to. So that when we mess up and we're foolish, Jesus grants us his righteousness. His wisdom. It's like this great trade. I'll take all my foolishness, Jesus. Please forgive me. Pay for that. And would you count it as if I'm as wise as you? Wiser even than Solomon. Righteous and holy before my heavenly father. Jesus says, I'll enact that policy. <laughs> I'll make the trade. And that's what he did at the cross. And this doesn't suddenly make me and you instantly like policymakers. <laughs> this doesn't make us instantly wise. It still takes like knowledge and understanding and depth and not just being like headline readers. We have to go deep. But we've got to begin with that hard attitude of coming before Jesus, recognizing that he is true wisdom. All wisdom flows out of him. All truth is God's truth. And so we seek truth. We seek to know God, to understand how our world works. James 1.5 says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. God gives Jesus generously to us. 
And that's the beginning of wisdom. And so if, if you've been living a life and you don't know Jesus, dare I say a life of like foolishness, where you're betting on your own record before God, can I just invite you to, to come and submit yourself before the one who is wise, Jesus Christ. Let him change you. Let him save you and redeem you. And then work through you to, to bring flourishing to this world. This is, I don't know if I'll use any other movie illustrations this whole series, but I'm just packing it in today. Last one, we'll close on this. One of my favorite movies um, is Groundhog Day. I don't know if any of you like that with Bill Murray, right? It's such a funny movie where he gets trapped in this, yeah, he gets trapped in the same like time loop, this sort of limbo. The same day, he keeps repeating and repeating, and he keeps, first, what does he do? He tries to do all these bad things, right? Tries to, to, he robs banks, and he very successfully does whatever he wants in that city with no consequences, just to find himself back there again. It's only as he then begins to turn outward and to care about others, to care about the community, to seek the common good and the flourishing of those around him. He like learns how to play the piano. And there's a someone who falls out of a tree and he helps him. And there's someone who's choking, right? And he does the Heimlich. It's like whole day becomes busy with serving others, even though he knows he'll just have to do it again the next day. Right? He seeks that shalom. And, and then he begins to display wisdom. Humility. And that finally is what gets him out of limbo into the next day, a new day. I think if we as believers try to remember that, that God gives us wisdom to help us mind the gap, to get to a new day, I think that's something that we can take into our political engagement. All right, you, you thought it was going to be a W. No, you, understanding and wisdom. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the ways that you do give us understanding and wisdom. Thank you that for the, the ways that you're, you're molding us to, to shape and, and think about our world. Would you grant us wisdom? Could you grant us understanding? Lord, I don't like listening to those I disagree with. I don't like hearing their side of things. But I pray that you would help me do that, help all of us do that. Not that we're just going to blindly go with whatever others say, but just really trying to discern, trying to understand. And by doing this, Lord, we embody a little bit of Jesus' wisdom in our world. We thank you for Jesus. We love him. We worship him. In his name we pray. Amen.